Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that human beings do best when we live in community, because we're tribal animals. We enjoy doing things together. We're cooperative, collaborative species. We like doing all kinds of things together, whether it's sewing circles or poker games, going to football games and playing rugby together, watching television together. In fact, what we really like doing is eating together. Human beings love getting together in circles or small groups and eating together. Again, we're a friendly group of people, but we must always be aware that there's a very small percentage of us who are extremely different. These people are predators who would dominate us. These people have been around since the beginning of time when we came out of the caves. They were the ones who had the biggest club so that they could club people in order to dominate. They were the ones who became leaders of the tribe through power and eventually turned themselves into what got called kings with private property, which became what are called countries. And eventually the kings made a deal with the church and they ruled through divine right. So if you went against the king's power, the church would tell you that you're going to hell. You not only get your head chopped off, but you'd be go for eternal damnation. And that's the way they ruled. And they did so with the exception of the experiments in Greece and ancient Rome with democracy and republic. They did so until our revolution. When we had the courage to overthrow a king and the church and turn ourselves from subjects into citizens. A major change in history. So we overthrew King George and to a certain extent the church, and we became citizens instead of subjects. But I am cautioning us because throughout all of history, there are those who would turn us back into subjects. You saw it with the pharaohs in Egypt. Moving forward, you saw Caesar overthrew the republic and turned it into an empire in Rome. You can jump forward in history anywhere you want, whether it's to Genghis Khan, to Napoleon, uh, the 20th century. You want to go into Mussolini and Hitler, more now, Bolsonaro and Trump. These are all people who would prefer what's called a dictatorship as a way of ruling. We must stay aware if we want to maintain our democracy and our republic, if we want to remain as citizens. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm pleased to have with us Mike Marinacci. He's with us to talk about his latest book, and I say latest because he's got some other very interesting books that I've researched, but his latest book is called Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Mike. Thank you, Richard. I mentioned that you had some other books. One is called Weird California. I just want to talk a little bit about the, your other book before we get into psychedelic cults, because 
it's such a fascinating thing. How did you get into that? And tell us a little about Weird California. I've always been interested in the outre and the bizarre and unusual. And when I was in high school, I read a book uh, called Haunted Britain by a man named Anthony Cox, which was like a uh, like a Fodor guidebook to the haunted houses and places of legend in England and Wales and Scotland. It had beautiful photographs and illustrations and kind of stuck in my head. And I wondered, why has nobody ever done anything like this for the United States? We have just as much myth and legend, weirdness, and um, places of mystery as anywhere else on, on Earth. And I've always been fascinated by California history and culture. I'm a native son. And my parents actually wrote a couple of uh, travel books about California. And I uh. put the ideas together and I said, well, um, why don't I do one for this state? And in the late 80s, I did a uh, the dawn of uh, desktop publishing. I did a self-published book called Mysterious California, which went through three printings and uh, got me a lot of tension. And then in the early 2000s, I got together with two other writers, uh, Joe Osterley and Greg Bishop, and we did uh, Weird California for Sterling Publications. And Weird California is kind of a combination of travel book and coffee table, nice illustrated photograph photography book of all the strangeness in the gold, Golden State. It became something of a bestseller. We went on uh, TV and radio and did a lot of promotion for it. More recently, I've become interested in uh, comparative religion and non-traditional spirituality. I, a few years ago, I did a book called California Jesus about the Christian sects and evangelists that have em either emerged from here or settled here, and that is a wild story in and of itself, uh, and it's one that has not kind of really been systematically looked at until, uh, until the book came out. And my latest book, as you mentioned, is uh, Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches. This is really a study, kind of popular, pop sociology and pop history of North American religious sects and churches and circles and cults that have used entheogens, as we call them, as holy sacraments in their practice. And as a result, have met up with much uh, legal trouble and much uh, popular controversy. And that's just been a subject that's fascinated me for many, many years and have done a lot of research on it and finally was able to lash it all into one, one book. And again, I think it's, it's pretty much unprecedented. Nobody really has looked at it in this fashion until now in one book that brings all of these groups and all of the individuals that founded them together. It's certainly a, a meticulously uh, researched book. What uh, sort of attracted you towards uh, writing about psychedelic cults and, and outlaw churches? And the outlaw churches, of course, are churches that are using entheogens. So mm -hmm. you're writing basically about psychedelics. What attracted you to do so? Well, I had my own experiences with entheogens in college that were kind of life-changing and really have stuck with me to this point over 40 years later. I have always had an interest in, as I said, unusual religious and spiritual groups. 
I have just noticed that there has been first in the 1990s and really the last few years, a huge, huge renaissance in the field of psychedelic studies and the use of these uh, chemicals as for therapy, for um, there's always been, of course, the recreational use. And I said, nobody has really looked at the history of their use for spiritual uh, growth in North America, you know, on the broad level, I mean, there have been books about um, the Native American church who are really the first, the ones that got it all rolling in the United States and Canada back in the 1910s, 1920s, and works about Timothy Leary and his League for Spiritual Discovery, things like that. But um, nobody's really looked at the whole phenomenon. And I just decided, well, it deserved a book, and as I have always said about the books I write, the books I have written are books that I myself would buy immediately if I was at the store. So that's going to my, been my guide, guide as an author. If it's something that really interests me, I think it probably would re really interest a lot of other people, and I want to get the information out there. That's very interesting. I think of myself almost as the opposite, that if something interests me, it's probably not going to interest a lot. A lot of people. <laughs> so a little history on yourself. What were the uh, psychedelics that you experimented with that had a positive effect on you some 40 years ago? Psilocybin, primarily. Cannabis. I do consider cannabis a, an entheogen. It is associated historically with spiritual practice in the old world, certainly in Asia and to a certain lesser extent in southeastern Europe and Africa, and then, of course, it migrated over to the New World here. Um, I've always said about, well, the thing I like to say about the use of cannabis as a sacrament, I paraphrase something that has been attributed to uh, Mickey, what Mickey Spillane said about beer. Anyone who can't have a psychedelic experience on cannabis isn't trying. I think that's legitimate. LSD a couple of times, although my own take about what has been called LSD the last 40 or 50 years is probably not the same. And again, I am not a chemist. I'm a lay person, but I just get the impression that what really kicked off the, uh, the so-called psychedelic revolution in the 60s was the very pure and very well-made Sandoz laboratory-produced uh, lysergic acid. I think what we've gotten... Since it was made outlawed, it, since it was outlawed, has been various variants of, of bathtub chemistry. So you're not really getting that pure sub, pure substance that I think Leary and the early experimenters were getting back in the early 60s. I tried 5-MeO-DMT once, which was kind of interesting. I would like to someday do peyote in an actual peyote uh, ceremony, but generally those are restricted to Native Americans. And uh, I know that non-Native Americans have been invited to them and have experienced it, but that's kind of on my bucket list. I think it's more, with me, it's more just the uh, the changes it wrought in, in my personality way back when, in my view of the world, that have been more or less permanent. I think this is the real power of them. It's not the trip itself. It's what you get out of it and how uh, you live your life afterwards. What stands out for you, Mike, about what you got out of your personal experiences with psychedelics and a little information about 
how it affected the way you live your life? Contact with the divine. I was raised secular humanist. I never really had an interest in religion or spirituality until the first couple of times with mushrooms when the experience as I had, I interpreted as being numinous, as being touching God, whatever you want to define God as. And it made me understand, I think, this part of human experience that I hadn't understood before and made me very much interested in comparative religion and the history and teaching of the great traditions and particularly the mystical and esoteric aspects. So I think it also made, just opened me up quite a bit. I grew up with a lot of anger and a lot of fear, and I was able to let a lot of that go as a result of realizing that you know, I'm here for 70 or 80 years or however long I am, and I don't have to worry as much about things as I, I did before. And I also have a sense death is physical death is not the end, that my consciousness in some form will be immortal. My ego won't be, but I've often said that I'm just one of the uh, pairs of the eyes of God, and there's a uh, Eight billion of a more of us that are around here, and we're all kind of extensions of the divine. And once we lose our our human selves, that spark, the soul, spirit, whatever you want to call it, or consciousness, joins the whole general one and and becomes just part of the whole. Um, brings its experiences and its observations back and becomes part of the whole again. So there's a that's my take on it. I think my early experiences with amphiogens, whether they be uh, psilocybin or LSD or the uh, more mindful use of cannabis for mind expansion rather than just recreation, although I do enjoy that, they help me deal with a lot of my, my anger, a lot of fear, kind of let things go, and just also tell me that there is, um, in a sense, I am, my consciousness is immortal, that my body and my ego might die, but I am, I think, like all other human beings, an extension of the divine. We are here on this planet having experiences and witnessing things and learning things that eventually go back to the great field of consciousness, whether you want to call it God or, or whatever, that is immortal. There is really no beginning and no end with, with this. We're just kind of living it out in flesh form for 70 or 80 years here. So that's just my particular take on it. I often can refer to myself as a transcendental agnostic. I mean, I'm not really sure anything, but I have a lot of suspicions and a lot of theories and a lot of hunches about what might be on. I just kind of uh, leave my absolute judgments out of it apart. Uh, and just perceive and experience as I, uh, things as, as they go along. So what would you like to share with our listeners and readers about psychedelic cults and outlaw churches? What, what stands out for you? And tell us some stories, some juicy stories. Well, really the narrative of the book begins with the Native American church. This is the organization sort of started to form in the late 19th century when 
the use of peyote began to spread among the uh, the indigenous peoples of North America. It, had, it has been around for thousands of years, but it really got going in this part of the of the hemisphere. I think in the wake of uh, the ghost dance, wounded knee, and the native peoples were looking for something to give them hope and looking for something to give them a, a collective identity as indigenous people and a vision of healing and a future. And they spent uh, almost a century fighting the federal government and various state governments and various tribal governments for the right to hold peyote ceremonies where they would gather in a teepee or a lodge or a hogan and have a ritual that centered on the uh, the ingestion of peyote and the visions that they got from the masculine within the plant. They are easily the biggest and largest, the biggest and most established of all groups I, I look at in psychedelic cults and outlaw churches. They've been around as an organized entity for over 100 years. And then I really look at the groups kind of in their wake uh, the non-Native American individuals that had profound experiences with, whether it was peyote or LSD or psilocybin or cannabis, and brought these, um, decided their experiences needed to be shared in a group setting, in a communal setting, where people could have them together and have a sort of communal experience of, of the divine, of the transcendent, using entheogens. Really, the narrative in the book after the Native American church starts with a group called the Church of the Awakening in Arizona in the early 1960s that was founded by two retired osteopaths and was the first sort of legally or organized entheogen-using church in North America after the NEC. And they had all sorts of legal troubles. Their story is quite an intriguing one. I actually knew uh, John Aiken in his later years in the, in the 1980s and 1990s and interviewed him a couple of times. He was the founder. Then I go through a couple of very uh, peyote churches run by a couple of very interesting characters. The late Emmanuel Trujillo, who runs the uh, Peyote Way Church of Grand, the Peyote Way Church of God, and then James Mooney. Uh, of the Oklahoma Native American Church, who himself is Native American and got it has been in a lot of trouble with more Orthodox American Indian groups because he has not only taken peyote meetings to non non Native American peoples, but has included other organic uh, entheogens such as cannabis and ayahuasca and psilocybin in the uh, rites that his churches use. I look at the LSD groups, beginning with Timothy Leary and the League for Spiritual Discovery and the various controversies around him and that organization. Uh, and I'm also very much interested in, um, in the cannabis use in groups. I do everything from the Ethiopian Zion Coptic Church, which were the first Rastafarian organization to reach out beyond the African diaspora in the Caribbean to, uh, to other peoples. And at one point they were incredibly wealthy and incredibly powerful in the late 70s in the United States. And they even were on featured on 60 Minutes. There was a story about them because they'd just gotten so much money and so much visibility in, uh, in Florida. And then the feds uh, stomped down on them. I look at other, uh, other organizations and really a lot of the attention is on the personalities of the founders, the beliefs of these groups, 
uh, the practices that they have, how they, the rituals and the particular observances they go through around the use of these substances. And of course, a huge factor is the legal struggles. I mean, until very re recently, cannabis was absolutely illegal in most, in, in all American states, and it's still Schedule One on the federal level. They're still, the only people who've been able to use peyote legally are the American Indians and the Native American Church. And even that was only made absolutely solid 30 years ago with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, these groups have all, and their members and leaders have all been in and out of jail and courts many, many times. And there have been a plethora of legal decisions uh, relating to their First Amendment rights or lack thereof about using these in religious practice. And I, you know, as a layperson, I am not an attorney or a legal scholar, but I look at the decisions too and how they just affected the greater, um, the greater practices in this religious underground. Uh, more, the two real big ones were both for the, um, the Native American church, and that would have been state of Arizona versus Atakai in about 1960-61, and then People versus Woody in California. And those were the ones that started, that sort of, said, okay, these are traditional practices. The laws are still against them are still going to stay on the books, but we'll kind of be tolerant towards um, their use by, by Indians on reservations in religious context. And a lot of the laws sort of built on from there and more recent decisions, such as the ones um, about two Brazilian ayahuasca using churches who have missions here have gone in their favor as well. The pattern seems to be if these are if these can be portrayed as indigenous practices, the courts seem to be okay with it. The thing that the non-indigenous groups, so the Timothy Leary's, the other people have run into is, no, these are things that you just came up with. They're not part of a traditional spiritual usage. And so they are covered under the First Amendment, but that is beginning to change. Um, there have been a couple of state court decisions recently that say religious practice, adults, private you're not promoting it. We're just going to look the other way. So things are changing. Where, where did that happen with the non-indigenous cult or, or church where, being accepted? One very good example that I mentioned in Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches is of an organization that I like a lot called the, the Oratory of Mystic Mystical Sacraments. They are a spinoff from, I would mentioned earlier, the Oak Laban Native American Church. They took a charter under them and kind of went in their own direction, and they're very much oriented. And this is kind of unusual in the psychedelics world, which seems to really crib from the uh, the usages of indigenous Americans or Eastern spirituality, particularly uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, Taoism, or neo-paganism. Uh, they're very much oriented towards Western esotericism, Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry, alchemy, things like that. One of their members was busted in um, New Hampshire, I believe, for possession of psilocybin, and he fought it on in court as a religious freedom case, and the New Hampshire State, State Supreme Court ruled in his favor. The problem is that that ruling is binding only in the state of New Hampshire, but was kind of an important precedent that happened just a few years ago where a state Supreme Court was saying, Yes, this is a First Amendment freedom of religion right for a, uh, a responsible adult to use these in private, these substances in private for uh, for spiritual growth. 
Was he a member of this uh, oratory yes. of mystical practice? Yes, yes. And I, I discussed the oratory and I discussed that case in uh, psychedelic cults of outlaw churches. And that is just one case that comes to mind of a recent example of the courts becoming a bit more open to this sort of thing in the first century. As a side note here, yes. Mike, how are these people able to launch these uh, legal battles and and take a case to the Supreme Court that costs a great deal of money. Well, I know in the case of one of the Brazilian churches that had a mission here, the bust of their mission happened in, I believe, New Mexico several years back. And the leader of the church there was a member of the Canadian Bronfman, Bronfman family, who are yeah. very wealthy and have been in, involved in all sorts of uh, strange things in the past, ranging from the case of Ira Einhorn, in, who was the murderer in Philadelphia, to various others. They're, they seem to be kind of an odd bunch. And he had the resource, he had family resources fight yes. it, to fight it all the way up to the Supreme Court. He and that church won. I think of, in other cases, it's been uh, pro bono attorneys who are big supporters of the First Amendment. My friend Anne Armstrong, who is the founder and leader of the Healing Church in Rhode Island, is currently fighting a, uh, a legal battle there along with her partner, Alan, Alan Gordon, for possession of cannabis charge there. I think I believe that Rhode Island is the last of the New England states that is not across the board legalized cannabis, although I may be wrong. I believe she is defending herself right now. It really depends on, on the case, but I think a there are a lot of attorneys out there who are very passionate First Amendment uh, defenders who will fight the courts about these things. The problem is getting the court to uh, decide in your favor. The case with Mr. Bronfman and that uh, and the Brazilian church was one of, I think, Egypt had the resources to do it. Other of these groups have not. Native American church have had an advantage, I think, also in that they have membership and are, very, and are fairly well organized. A lot of these other groups are a little... A little of it's kind of hard to rally the uh, the various members to uh, to donate money or time. Mike, what's driving these cults and these outlaw churches? What drives any organized religion or spiritual group? I think a lot of it is people's need for community. People's need when they have a really overwhelming or transcendent experience, whether that be on entheogens or prayer or meditation or what have you, that they want to be around other people who have had the same thing and, and understand it and can encourage each other's practices and where you can have something of an organized community that can support it all and can can provide protection if necessary. I mean, the history of new religions is really a, a history of them being heavily persecuted, particularly in their early days, because they would come up with something that was considered heretical or just not, uh, not orthodox. More mainstream groups, whether a state church or government or whomever, would clamp down on I think we might say that the cults that are successful look down upon and persecute the upcoming cults. That, that's something that's once been said once is a religion is a cult with political power. 
And I think there's some yeah. truth to that. I think if you look at the history of Mormonism in this country, it was just considered this outrageous, totally heretical cult when it first appeared. And they were very heavily persecuted, murdered, mm -hmm. lynched. Very bad things happened to them until the main body migrated to Utah, which back then was the middle of nowhere. And they could kind of get along and do their what they did in relative peace. I think it's happening. It certainly happened with the Native American church. It's happened with these other groups. And I like to often say the only groups I would really compare at present day to the psychedelics use in churches would be the snake handlers, also as the signs following Pentecostals up in, uh, in Appalachia, and some of the African diasporic religions that do animal sacrifice. Their practices of the three areas are really considered very outré and illegal or at least really uh, disapproved. So it's you know, these are the really hard tests for the First Amendment. Is, 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 are these practices, do these practices fall under the guarantee of freedom of religion? Struggling that one with the, uh, with the amphigenic religions for over a century, and we're still uh, having controversies about it. So what you're saying, if I understand you, is that some of these outlaw churches, I'm not talking about the indigenous tribes mm -hmm. now, but maybe outlaw churches, are a lot more than people just wanting to figure out a way to use various kinds of mind-altering substances. They really consist of true believers. Many of them do. I mean, in psychedelic cults and outlaw churches, I... Look at, I believe it's about 65 or 66 different organizations. And yeah, some of them in there are pretty frivolous. I don't, I just lay out the facts as I see them and don't really make a judgment about that. I let the readers decide for themselves about which of these ones are, are phonies and which aren't. But there are very, there is a good number of organizations and people within the organizations who I think are quite sincere about um, psychedelics or entheogens as a yoga, as a spiritual discipline and practice. It really depends, I think, on the group and the individual and the circumstances they're in. And I think one of the things I discuss in psychedelic cults and law churches is this question of, okay, well, what is a religion? What is a spiritual discipline? A great example here would be the Neo-American Church, which emerged in the, at the famous Millbrook Estate in upstate New York around the same time that uh, Timothy Leary was there. The man who founded it, like Timothy Leary, was also a uh, an ex-psychologist, Art Kleps. And his whole take on the psychedelic experience and on having an organized spiritual group was let's keep it from becoming too institutionalized. Let's keep it from becoming too fossilized and, and, and straight laced. Let's keep it kind of fun and loose and absurd. So he would, he called the priests of the church were called boohoos. Uh, the church symbol was a three eyed toad, which was a reference to bufotenin, which is the substance that comes out of certain amphibians that contains a DMV, DMT variant. There, the church, um, the church motto was victory, victory over horse shit. I mean, there was this very playful attitude about religious practice itself, even though he was very serious about 
psychedelics as a, a spiritual practice and even went went along with Timothy Leary to the 1966 Senate hearings about LSD and gave testimony to the senators there that was uh, quite sober-sighted. So, yeah, it, it gets into the, really, I'm, in the book, I discuss this aspect of, okay, what what is a religion? What is spirituality? What is a divine experience? And do the uh, the experiences that people have with these chemicals in the context of of a sacred community really count as such? And it's a very diverse and wide array of practices and groups and organizations that I discuss in psychedelic cults and outlaw churches. And I, as I said before, I really let the the reader make up their own mind about what's legitimate, what is. How did you communicate with the, uh, these organizations, Mike? Well, a lot of them are defunct, so that was just doing a lot of research. I have had contact with many of the organizations there, and the, the founders I mentioned, Ann, Ar- Ann Armstrong earlier, who I keep in regular touch with. She's quite famous. Oh, yeah. I interviewed um, James Mooney, the founder of the Oakleva Native American Church, who was a very interesting character. He's led quite a life. Members and ex-members, one of the most helpful, of not the most helpful ex-member was a man named Carl Hassell, who used to be in the Peyote Way Church of God, um, had done his own original research about the group's founder, which I compiled into uh, psychedelic, psychedelic cults and outlaw churches. And that is an incredible story about Emmanuel Trujillo, who was really the first person to attempt to bring, to get peyote outside of the Native American church and bring it to the world at large and who kind of got away with it for a long time. The His group, the Peyote Way Church of God, is still extant. He died a few years ago, but they're still out there in Arizona and still taking people on peyote walks. What's the name of his church the again? The Peyote Way Church of God. And they're out in, in have they have a, uh, a ranch out in Arizona and they offer their members uh, peyote walks, which is sort of a as opposed to the um, full moon or the, the big moon or half moon rites in um, in the Native American church, which are collective and happen under the leadership of a roadman, these are kind of individual walkabouts or individual vis- vision quests. And uh, are these a, uh, does this consist of a couple that live out in the middle of nowhere in the desert them. there in Arizona? That's them, uh, uh, Ann and Morty. Well, yeah, they're uh, yeah. by co. By coincidence, my daughter just flew out from New York City mm-hmm. and spent some time with them in order to go through one of their ceremonies. Oh, yeah. They have a fascinating history, and their founder, Emmanuel Trujillo, I mean, what a character. I go, I get into his uh, story in Psychedelic Cults and Outlaw Churches. Uh, this is a man who did a lot of really wild things in his life and was connected with a lot of uh, people. For one thing, he always said that he was the first person to turn Timothy Leary on to peyote in that around 1962. Leary had done psilocybin and acid at that point, but this he was the first person who, who actually gave Leary peyote buttons and said, "Try this." So yeah, that's um, they're yeah they're an interesting bunch. They're they're a very small organization though, aren't they? Well, most of the groups I, I discuss in the in the book are fairly small. 
What they are doing in most cases is definitely illegal. Uh, it is a, very much an underground where they have to often be quite discreet about their practices. That is changing, I think, with the uh, increasing uh, mainstream interest and, to and toleration of, uh, of entheogen use. Really, it's, um, and, but I think that many of them have influence that goes way beyond their actual membership. I mean, the Church of the Awakening never had more than 300 or 400 people in it, but it really was kind of the first group not only to be org out, outside of the Native American church, not only to be organized legally as a psychedelic church, but the first one that really kind of was not really consisting of indigenous people or beatniks or hippies, but people, mainstream Americans with a particular interest in expanding their consciousness, growing spiritually through the use of peyote and mescaline. The founders themselves were, when the church was founded, the founders were in their 60s and retired osteopaths and very respectable citizens. And that was really most con what consisted of most of their membership was the same. They did not have too much uh, crossover with the, uh, the 60s psychedelic counterculture. And then I get into would you say oh, is the Church of the Awakening? Would you say that's the largest or most powerful of the psychedelic cults and, and uh, underground churches, or there are others that are even well? Larger? They've been defunct for about fifty years. They were wiped out, of course. Right now, I would say, other than the Native American Church, Ayahuasca healings is very, very visible. It's run a lot of people through its. Uh, its sessions. They mostly do their work now in Peru and Mexico, but they were included in the in the book because for a short time they had a re retreats going up in Washington State, where they were using ayahuasca, and where the founder Trinity de Guzman uh, was asserting, "Since this is legal in the U.S., you can do it at our Washington retreat." And he had to stop it when he realized, no, we're in a we're in a legal gray area. The DEA is really not giving their say so to us, so we probably need to to not be doing this in the U.S. But when these were happening, he's a De Guzman is a great self promoter, and very enthusiastic, and very uh, knowledgeable on how to get uh, get buzzes going on the internet. It just became a huge, huge thing in the mid and late 2010 about, about wow, these illegal, Iowa legal uh, circles are happening in Washington State. I, I can't give you any numbers with him, but I know it's hundreds, if not thousands of people have, have taken it through that organization. Uh, really, again, I think the, uh, the legal aspects and the social, the still existing social program and the kind of keep these from getting bigger. Most of them are fairly small organizations, but they do have, uh, they have had influence in the court decisions uh, regarding their practices and also in the world of new religions, new religious, that this is, this is considered its own, its own family, right along with the neo-pagans and Wiccans and the sort of Eastern groups that have been reinterpreted in Western contexts that have emerged here. This is considered its own, its own kind of discrete, discrete phenomena within the new religious world. I think some of the larger religions 
would be interested were it not for the illegality. I I had the opportunity to meet with some Anglican bishops some years ago, and they were very interested in the possibility of using MDMA with young theological uh, students uh, because they realized that they could get further in their studies with using MDMA than perhaps many years in meditation cloistered. Will, if I may cross-promote another author who I like and who you and maybe your listeners have probably heard of, and that would be Bran Rorescu, the author of The Immortality Key, he is a devout Catholic. And through his research and work at the Vatican archives and in various archaeological uh, databases, he is positive that the early Christian church may have used some forms of entheogens in, in the agape love feast, in the original Eucharist, and that this got sidelined or repressed for one reason or another, and that these experiences may have been the core of the original Christian experience. He also looks at the ancient, um, the ancient Hebrews and said there is evidence for, for the use of uh, entheogens among them as well. This is something that I think, again, I would need to see more evidence. I would need to see more, more studies of these to really make a decision. But it is an intriguing possibility that these substances may be at the root of much, if not most, of the human religious experience. You just see it happening again and again and again. Here are the these plants and fungi and even animals in the case of the psychedelic toads that one can produce these experiences that are unlike anything else in the human you know in human life and that are almost inevitably seem to be interpreted as content of the divine. It's it's something that I think is just going to get more and more studied more and more and is going to gain in barring some sort of prohibitionist backlash, which is possible, will just become more and more accepted by the mainstream. And yes, as you said, may become part of mainstream religious practice, or at least a mainstream religion is acknowledging in, in their deep roots, they probably had a lot of this, this going on that really started these various faiths. Certainly, so there in Hinduism with the Shaivites and cannabis usage. There's also the question about what Soma is in that uh, in that part of the world. Um, and in psychedelic cults and outlaw churches, I get into several different groups who say, well, Soma was cannabis, and that's why we use it. Or Soma is Amani the Muscaria mushrooms, and it's our sacrament. It's something you just see. It's it's almost a global a global experience, this changing of consciousness in a ceremonial or ritual format using psychoactive substances. That's a perfect place to end the interview. Okay. <laughs> well. That was, a, that was a great, succinct statement because it is happening around yes. the world and it has been since the beginning of Absolutely. time. Is there anything you want to add, Mike, about psychedelic cults and underground churches before we go? And outlaw churches, yes. Um, uh, outlaw I churches. Would like, what I, I would like me. people to buy the book, read the book, absorb these stories, make their own decisions about whether these groups are legitimate and whether their practices are legitimate. I don't recommend pursuing this path oneself. At the same time, I 
I'm a very strong advocate for the right of responsible adults to explore their own consciousness in whatever way they see possible. It seems right without hurting other people. So that's really all I have to say about psychedelic cults and outlaw churches, other than it was a lot of fun to research and write. And I really hope people enjoy reading it as much as I did putting it together. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You heard Mike, what he's talking about, his book, Psychedelic Cults, Outlaw Churches. You can find it easily on Amazon. It's a good read. I had a lot of fun with it. And you might find it takes you to other places as well, as, as it did with me, to haunted <laughs> houses in California. Yes, you don't even, you so don't even have to take, time, take the chemicals. Just reading it will uh, change your consciousness. Look at it that way. <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth in that. Until next time, folks, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.